You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Welcome to Trowers and Hamlins podcast. My name is Amadeep Gill, and I'm a partner in our public sector team. I'm delighted to start our analysis of the Leveling Up white paper we'll be undertaking a series of podcasts where we examine the issues and topics arising from the white paper and how they will impact on policy and government over the coming years. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Adam Holtzby from Onward, a think tank that is undertaking a significant amount of work and analysis on the agenda. And I'm going to hand over to Adam to do a quick intro to him first and Onward before we take a detailed examination of the themes emerging from the white paper. Thanks, Amadi. And thanks for having me on. Really pleased to um, be able to talk about this really important moment for, for the UK. Um, so as you say, Adam Hawksby, uh, I'm Deputy Director of Onward. Uh, we're a Westminster-based think tank that focus on how to boost economic growth, particularly in places where it's been lagging, and rebuild and support civil society and our social fabric, uh, particularly in places where it's frayed. And we've been going for about three or four years um, and are really grateful that we've been cited a number of times in the white paper and a number of ideas have been taken up. So this for us is a really important moment to start delivering on some of the things we've been working on for, for some time. That's great. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, and we're very grateful to have your time and insight today. So why don't we just launch into it? Look, the merits of rebalancing the UK's economy are obvious, Adam. And, you know, uh, the work that Onward has done on that issue is, you know, really important in terms of that narrative. But the off-sighted examples of where rebalancing economies has happened has also uh, noted the significant funding needed to make it happen. Now, do you think the white paper is seeking a different type of rebalancing than those examples, perhaps, that you and I have been accustomed to referring to? And in any case, do you think that the current lack of new funding for the white paper from government is an inhibition to perhaps the eventual success of the ambition set out? So it's a really good question. And that challenge of is the white paper sufficient to meet the demands of the unbalanced UK economy is, I think, the key one that's been going on for the last couple of days since the white paper has been published. I mean, look, the the scale of the challenge is enormous, and I won't uh, labour it. I actually really welcome the fact that there's a kind of 100-page or so history lesson at the start of the white paper, because that really does make extremely clear, if there are any doubters, that our economy is not functioning in the way that it should. There's a clear political case you know, Brexit and some of the challenges there, the disillusionment with politics was driven by these inequalities and by resentment and frustration about the gaps in the country. There is a moral case. There are individuals across the country whose potential is being squandered uh, because they are uh, unable to access opportunity. Uh, And there's a really clear economic case that the country is, like Michael Gover said a number of times, a jet engine flying on one cylinder, that being London, Um, And we know that in Germany, 12% of people live in areas that are 10% below average incomes. In the UK, 35% do. The only countries more unbalanced than us, developed countries, are Romania and Poland. So the scale is huge. But your question, rightly, is is the level of ambition in the white paper big enough to, to meet that challenge? And 
the way I think about it, particularly looking at examples like East Germany that you mentioned, uh, like the Basque region, like parts of the US, like Pittsburgh, uh, lesser known examples like Chattanooga in Tennessee, places that have bucked the trend in terms of growth. What they've done is not just had a small set of interventions or, or even actually very well-funded individual interventions. What they've done is change the entire system and incentive and structure in order to channel all forms of investment. So finance going there, but also the other capitals that are listed in the white paper. How do you build human capital and skills? How do you build intangible capital around the knowledge economy? Uh, and really importantly, how do you build institutional capital? How do you make sure that leaders in local places um, have the appropriate powers? So, you know, look, there, there are not big new spending commitments above and beyond the spending review in the white paper. The, the chapter in the white paper on policy is very focused on how the money in the spending review is going to be deployed. So if anyone was hoping for a new multi-billion announcement in the white paper, that doesn't do the job. The reason I actually am I'm optimistic about the white paper is if you think about the act of changing government, more like a tiny little tugboat, and that being kind of Michael Gove and the levelling up agenda, trying to move an oil tanker one or two degrees. And the way you do that is not with, you know, uh, an intervention, you know, a 10 billion pound levelling up pot or whatever. It's by changing the incentives and by changing the system. And that's what I think some of the things I think we're going to get into in our conversation in that chapter on systems change start to do. You've got missions that try and get all of government to think about some of these cross-cutting targets. You've got devolution, which moves power away from the center of government. You've got some, you know, it's very wonky, but you've got some stuff in there on data about how you can genuinely understand at a granular level what's happening. So I think some of those system changes are what's going to mean that all of government's money starts moving towards left behind areas. And that will complement some of the policies that are also announced and um, were announced a couple of days ago. Thanks, Adam. And yes, we're, we'll be exam examining some of those aspects that you, you've touched on, including devolution and missions in a moment. But I just want to carry on the financial theme for a moment, if I may. Um, not all types of funding allocation have the same impact on local economies. Now, yeah. do you think there is enough emphasis on the distribution of growth facilitating spending? And perhaps you can start by setting out what you think that kind of spend is. So I would have done a, a paper on this. We did. We wrote something on levelling up growth enhancing spending. And in that, we looked at a very broad definition of what that growth enhancing spending might be. And we found in that that London gets three times the level of transport spend, five times the level of affordable housing spend, five times things like cultural spend. So some of that, you know, not necessarily hard physical infrastructure, but the softer infrastructure that gives people pride in their place and drives things like investment. Uh, and quality of life. So growth enhancing spend, we think, is probably summarised quite well by those six capitals that are in the white paper. So physical capital, your kind of roads, rail, but also some of the big manufacturing capital that firms will use. Uh, human capital, the skills that you might need in an area. We know that's a huge challenge, particularly parts of the West Midlands where I used to, to work and still live. Intangible capital, so those kind of soft assets that a knowledge economy operates on. How do you codify some of the practices that you have? Financial capital, how do we get investment in places? And there were some commitments to things like the British Business Bank, so getting funding towards SMEs. Uh, institutional capital um, is the other really important element. So that's how you get leadership um, in particular places. And the final capital, which I think is often overlooked, and this comes to what is growth enhancing spending, 
is social capital. And we've done a lot of work. We did a, a report called The State of Our Social Fabric, which tried to measure really closely what is a sense of belonging in a place? What is the civic uh, capacity of a place in terms of its uh, libraries, in terms of its community pubs, community areas, post offices, etc. And we found massive disparities in the UK in the strength of that social fabric and very clear relationships between growth and proper good inclusive growth and the state of social fabric. So what we see in the white paper is an attempt to start to redistribute some of that growth enhancing spending on things like R&D on transport, getting rid of things like the 80-20 rule to mean that housing spending isn't concentrated in the southeast. Um, we think there is more to do. Um, so, for example, on research and development, we think the target of a 30% increase in R&D spending by the end of this parliament and then a 40% increase by 2030 is a good one. We think government can go further and faster on that. And we hope that the missions are floor targets as opposed to ceilings uh, and that they can accelerate it. But the direction of travel and the recognition of how broad growth enhancing spending is, we really welcome so the white paper talks, uh, Adam, about the, the new policy regime being underpinned by five pillars. And one of those pillars, as mentioned, taught, has 12 missions that are set out. Now, those missions are indicators that anchor the policy and ultimately will determine the success. And they cover a very broad range of topics from skills, devolution, education, and then productivity. Now, what do you think of those missions? And equally, that 2030 benchmark? And I know you've touched on it a little bit more, but can we just kind of explore that a little bit further? Absolutely. So I I like the missions approach. I mean, I've long been a fan of the work of Marina Mazzucato and how she identifies that mission-based approaches are important because they galvanise action amongst a range of actors. Um, and they're very different from a sort of new labour, new public management style target and don't say, here is exactly how we're going to get to you know, a decrease in educational inequality. They instead say, this is a whole government, a whole country mission about where we want to uh, reach. And what's the private sector going to do there? What's the charity and community sector going to do? How are government at all levels, local, regional, national, going to reorient their activities? Now, I think there's been a lot of very reasonable challenge on the mission saying, well, hang on a minute. These are just some kind of slightly fluffy um, ambitions uh, with a date attached to them that's beyond the current parliamentary timetable so what's the point and I get that and I get that concern I understand it because it points to the fact that ultimately the missions will only be as good as the activity and the coordination they mobilize and that's going to require all of government and um, central government in particular to catalyze the action and, you know, this is a bit inside a baseball, but one of the ways that's going to have to happen is through the cabinet committee that is mentioned in the white paper that's already been meeting that Michael Gove is going to chair. If other parts of government see that cabinet committee and see those missions as tick box exercises, then they're not going to work. If, you know, your secretary of state for work and pensions is waking up every morning and thinking, OK, am I doing enough to work towards that mission? That's when you're going to start seeing, you know, the massive spend that goes through Job Centre Plus, for example, start to move in the direction of levelling up um, and rebalancing, uh, as opposed to at the moment, possibly not doing enough to um, address some of those imbalances. So I think I welcome the missions. The really important thing is how are you going to mobilise delivery around them? In terms of the 2030 target, I mean, I'm, I'm torn here. My kind of Twitter timeline is completely uh, balanced between people saying, 
what on earth is the point of a 2030 target? We need action right now. And others saying, well, hang on a minute, you can't get anything done in eight years in terms of major systemic change. Look at examples like East Germany, et cetera. My sense is honestly, the balance is broadly right, that it needed to be longer than a parliament for sure, but really enshrining anything beyond 2030, as we've seen with some of the work around net zero, means that you don't have a sense of urgency. And so I think setting 2030, but recognizing these missions could live on beyond them is probably about right uh, in terms of short versus long-term. Great. And my Twitter timeline was equally split on the issue as well. <laughs> so I, I'm glad I'm not the only one in that one. But um, in the run-up to the white paper, Adam, we heard much about devolution and actually the potential for local government reform. Just before Christmas, there, there was a lot of news about potential forced local government reform. And whilst we've got a number of cities and regions that kind of stepped up, before the issue of the white paper to perhaps fill the void of what levelling up could mean to them. What emerged for me was that devolution for pretty much all of these cities and regions was at the heart of their ask. Now, why do you think devolution is such an essential part of the levelling up story? And the paper itself talks about deeper devolution. Um, What do you think that could look like? And what do you think the white paper's offering in terms of devolution and local empowerment that we haven't seen before there's quite a lot to unpack there apologies for that no that's absolutely fine and i'm i'm a proper devolution evangelist and there are very few public policy questions to which i don't think a pretty significant part of the answer is devolution because ultimately you know devolution is quite a a kind of westminster policy policy wonk type phrase it's about power right it's where power sits Um, and I think that's enormously important and my experience to date has shown me how important it is so I used to um, work in the United States both with an organization that kind of coached mayors from around the world and worked with mayors of US cities and global cities on how they could deliver their role more effectively and also spent a period working in New York City in the mayor's office of operations during the de Blasio administration and the way that in the US cities and states are able to be these sorts of laboratories of experimentation to respond rapidly to concerns and problems that emerge in their places, deploying resources that are completely out of kilter with the UK experience, where there's a sort of cap in hand approach to get a part of investment here, a part of investment there. You know, that US experience, that really radically devolved model showed me what's possible. And I think the key lesson I took from that is The secret source in cities getting stuff done is how you bring together different assets um, and different institutions, the way that you combine uh, your really key firms with your universities, with your uh, workers in your labor market, with your deprived areas, as well as your thriving areas. There's a kind of civic knitting that occurs and it's civic leaders that do that. It cannot and will not be done by Whitehall. Um, And that's actually what led me to my last job. So I was working for the West Midlands Combined Authority with Andy Street as his head of policy, making the case and banging the drum for devolution. And actually kind of you mentioned a lot of cities and their devolution asks. My job there was to put together the West Midlands ask, WMCA ask for uh, devolution. So that then takes me to the white paper because I obviously I kind of moved jobs about three or so months ago and so went from banging the drum for a particular part of the country to kind of taking that broader national view. And in terms of what we saw in the white paper, I was actually really happy. I'll be honest, 
I think with the previous Secretary of State for what was then the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, there was less love for devolution, a bit more scepticism. Um, and I was pretty uncertain that you were going to see an ambitious offer on Devo. And so when Michael Gove took over, he met very early on with the uh, mayors of the uh, nine mayoral combined authorities and the Greater London Authority, and was very clear that he understood that you needed both deeper devolution and broader devolution. And by that, I mean deeper devolution. How do you give more powers, more flexibilities that places that might already have mayors or, or mayoral model? Um, and broader devolution, how do you get those powers to other places? Um, so what did we see in the white paper? So we saw a commitment to deeper devolution in that devolution framework. The two areas that have been set as trailblazers, uh, I was very pleased were with the West Midlands and Greater Manchester. And my hope is, although the detail in the white paper is fairly light on what those trailblazers might look like, I think that's okay, because that means that there's a blank sheet of paper to start negotiations with. My hope is that that starts to shift the evolution, and, and onward are going to write a paper about this shortly, from a model which is primarily about bringing together different parts of the public sector to providing leadership in place for the public, private and third sector. And you can do that through stronger powers over pots of economic funding, things like investment promotion, business support, and um, stronger relationships with universities and others. Some of that exists informally and, and certainly in places like the West Mids and Greater Manchester, but you can give more power uh, and more uh, control over resources to combined authorities to help that. I'd also like to see broader powers over the delivery of net zero. So things like electric vehicle charging infrastructure. It is insane to me that that funding is not deployed by the combined authority, by organizations like Transport for the West Midlands, and instead sits in Whitehall in the Department for Business, uh, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Uh, on things like retrofit, we've seen that things like the Green Homes Grant um, trying to kind of prompt consumer demand is not enough. You need coordinated action. You should coordinate that um, at the regional level. So the economic is the first element. Net zero is the second element. And then the third element for me is a sort of uh, focus on double devolution, public service reform, but not in the traditional sense of you know, shared services, but in a much deeper sense. And uh, Hilary Cotton has done some fantastic work on this in a book called Radical Help about how you kind of unleash the relational power that exists in our communities to change public services. Now, I don't think a metro mayor that has responsibility for 3 million people can do that at a hyper-local level. What they can do is support experimentation and innovation, working with local authorities and working with local charities. So that's what the deeper version looks like. In terms of broader, really welcome the county deals that were set out and the fact that there's a commitment in Mission 12 to have devolution in every area that wants it by 2030. The, the key there is going to be how the suite of powers that are set out in that really helpful table about level one, two, and three uh, command authorities, how those suite of powers are accelerated in terms of getting them out to particular areas. Because the risk, this is the, the kind of final point I'll make, the risk with all of this is the UK central government, and in particular the Treasury, still harbours a deep, deep scepticism towards devolution. It makes them nervous. They are worried that they can't control the funding flows. They're worried that local and regional government can't deliver and they can't get stuff done. And they worry that if they fail, the Treasury will still be holding the can. And to some degree, that's a reasonable concern. You know, those things don't come out of nowhere, those worries. They're deeply baked in to the sort of public policy DNA of the UK. So 
what we need to do is find ways to ensure that local leaders are accountable, that uh, that accountability is evidence-based and that stuff on data there will be really helpful. But also there are real investments in capacity for those places. And there were really good commitments actually on public sector leadership at all levels in the white paper, because you're going to need that commercial capacity, that sort of data analytic capacity within local areas and within metro mayoralties in order to address some of the challenges that devolution seeks to address. So uh, I guess to kind of summarise all of that, Devo really matters. This white paper starts to go in the right direction, but we have to oil the gears because otherwise they're going to move far too slowly. Um, can I just uh, have a, a quick add on to that, Adam? Uh, what do you think about the future role of LEPS? So the role of LEPS is really important, as in we need to have a mechanism for the private sector to have a voice in policy making and particularly in economic policy making it has to be private sector led uh, if we don't then skills are going to be misaligned incentives aren't going to function properly investment won't flow so on and so forth i think that you don't necessarily need an institution a separate institution called a local enterprise partnership to do that and in fact i think that when that is a separate institution that can lead to really unhelpful duplication. So I think the right thing to do in the white paper was to align LEPs into MCAs where they exist, as to be clear happens already, you know, Manchester and Liverpool, that's the model they've got. In the West Midlands, we've had a slightly different model because of our geography. Um, you should have empowered private sector kind of business boards and a business voice within mayoral combined authorities, influencing their use of economic and infrastructure levers. But I'm unconvinced that that requires a separate kind of brand and institution called a LEP. Adam, it's really clear that, you know, you're very passionate about the topic and clearly onward uh, have done and continue to do some excellent work in, the, in this space. But as somebody who is so knowledgeable on the topic, has looked at it and examined it, what did you genuinely think of the white paper? And did it speak to the things that you thought were important to encapsulate in a document like this? It's a really good question. And I mean, it's, you know, one of the, the perils of my job is my hobby, right? I, I, I love this stuff. Um, and I do spend, you know, weekends reading policy papers. So I'm a kind of proper, proper policy nerd. I think genuinely, I felt quite excited and trepidatious in reading the document. So, and, you know, it really, it was a set of emotions that went through the three parts of the document. So the first part, the economic analysis, I was delighted, and I'm a huge fan of Andy Haldane and the work he'd done at the Bank of England prior to taking on his role with the Leving Up team. The, the first 100 pages or so, you know, people have mocked it and, you know, are there bits off Wikipedia and what's the point of the stuff on Jericho and all the rest of it? Look, for the first time, I think someone has really seriously sat down, particularly well, academics and someone have done this, but from within government have said, here is where what we think of the problem, and in particular, here is where we think economic growth comes from. And I think that's really important because some of the kind of deregulatory Singapore on sea type models you hear about economic growth, I don't think actually understand where growth comes from in a modern knowledge economy through kind of agglomeration in dense and dynamic places. That's where innovation and that's where growth comes from. So I love the first 100 or so pages. I will you know, fight to the death with anyone that says that that should have been removed from the paper. In terms of the second chunk then on systems, that bit is a wonk's paradise, right? It's got loads of stuff in there on like data and transparency and missions and, 
And I think it's great, but it's absolutely never going to cut through with the public and nor should it really. That that bit is here is how we're going to realign the gears of government to get this stuff done. And I think that section on systems, particularly the bits on Devo, is really exciting, really ambitious. I think the section on policy, the third chapter, was was the least exciting for me. It had some really good stuff in there, some really interesting bits on you know innovation accelerators and education investment areas. And, and I think all of that is, is good. But it is clearly less ambitious than the economic analysis and the systems change proposals. And I think that is really a reflection of the fact that this is quite new for Whitehall. And therefore, when different departments were asked what they could do for this, you know, for this mission, for this white paper, they were not as forthcoming as they could have been. And so Michael Grove wasn't able to pull in as much ambition as he wanted to. Now, that is, un- again, unsurprising. This is big and this is new. But I think that the policy section being a little uh, lighter than the rest just shows that you're not going to be able to do this by dragging departments with you. You need to change the incentives and change the system. So I left it thinking, okay, this is, you know, the trepidation was this is going to be really tough and delivering on this, you know, delivering on the economic growth model and the systems change is going to be the trickiest bit. And that's why actually I'm now pleased to be in a think tank, which is pretty squarely focused on the delivery challenge. What are the practical things that can be done not the conceptual changes. I've got to say, um, just for absolute transparency, that the largest cities in the world since I think it's 7,000 BC has appeared on my Twitter feed yeah. uh, on a number of occasions. So I think <laughs> that's a, a firm um, public favourite there. But no, yeah. again, I concur with a lot of what you said there about the content and how it's been set out. And I genuinely did enjoy reading a kind of a very well thought out and considered tome to a lot of those issues that needed to look back in order to shape the future and then a final question from me as uh, we wrap up the podcast so Adam all of this great work all of this great thinking what now what can we do it we've been waiting for the white paper for such a long time it's landed now what do you think government in all its forms whether that be you know the the department that's issued this Michael Gove um, local government combined authorities what should we be doing now as much as businesses and individuals including think tanks as well what what do you think the next few weeks and months and years will now look like in terms of activity um, and the next steps so I think now not just because the political timeline there being an election in a couple of years for, for national government but also just because of the urgency of this agenda now's the time for delivery and getting things done and i'd say there are a couple of things that are really important now, let me say there are three things that are really important so one is detail we need to you know there's going to be a, a trailblazer devo deal in the west mids great what does that actually mean what does that actually look like how do we get to the extremely crunchy policy detail quickly um, and that's something that often people in the policy world are not good at um, and i think it's really important the second is resources so how are we going to cut through lengthy approval processes either within departments or within the treasury or within local and regional government and get resources to the places that they're needed from central to local government from local government down to communities or down to organizations or businesses that are doing the work and the third i think is is partnership and i don't mean that in a sort of fluffy let's all sign up to a joint statement piece i mean how do we find vehicles and mechanisms to pool 
uh, capability to pull risk to get stuff done. And in some places, that's going to mean special purpose vehicles for regeneration. In other places, that's going to mean new kind of university and business partnerships. But to get the missions done, we're going to need new ways to partner and work with one another beyond formal institutions. If the thing that comes out of this levelling up white paper is new horizontal relationships between different parts of the country and within different parts of the country, I think that would be a really great outcome. So I think it's all about delivery and those three things, I think, are, are real priorities to get moving on this. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. That's been a fascinating conversation and a great introduction to our analysis of the levelling up white paper. I wish you every success with everything that you're doing with Onward. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.